Hello and welcome back to another video on this channel. Today we are continuing our Genesis series. You guys are lucky we are doing two recordings today. And although we are doing two recordings today, this recording will probably come out in like a few months time because I'm still like five episodes late or even six episodes late. I've just uploaded our Genesis 5 discussion. But we're talking about Genesis 18. I'm not sure when this come out, but we it will come out sometime in the future. So I hope you guys will enjoy it. It's about the three visitors. We're going to talk about it. And we are joined with Warren. So Warren, how are you? And I see that your house is filled with visitors. Uh, I'm good. I think I, <laughs> people are just going in and out. But we, we can start reading the reading Genesis 18. All right, let me share the screen and get the screen on to uh, the screen, which is kind of what it means analytically to share your screen with someone. But But here it is indeed. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? Uh, sure, I can read it. The three visitors. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it, gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood, them, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, my, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, for I now have this pleasure. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Well, I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. All right, so how do you think, what do you think about this first section about the three visitors so far, my friend? I don't know. It's a, it's a very enigmatic story. <laughs> I, the number three just recurs again and again in in the Bible and other mythologies. And it, it's, it's a very interesting number. Do you, have, do you have any insights into it? I think the three visitors is very interesting here because yes, I, I definitely think the number three is fascinating. It's like the Trinity and three. It's, I think the idea of three is always very interesting. And the idea that you have two people, right? You have the idea of two together are responsible to each other, but no one else. But the moment you add the third person, it's like it fulfills not only personal responsibility, but communal kind of understanding of each other and that might be the three is the bare minimum you need to experience both unity but also have a feeling of responsibility by the other person yeah and also it's the three is the minimum you need to go go from sort of a straight line to an actual shape mm -hmm. so in a sense you're, you're you're right in that sense that you you at least need three anchors in order to carve out a, a public space be between people and 
it's there's also the idea i think that you need three to sort of initiate movement and difference and it is this it is a constant difference between the three that allows our new things to emerge as in, in hegel for example i think that's definitely an interesting idea i think it is true but i think i think this idea of three perhaps can also be applied to the idea of hell is other people the idea of other people in sartre because you look at the situation you're like well hell is other people it's the individual and the others making them an object or some but then in some sense you you also need the third person in order for it to truly become hell because if you look at a relationship in that sense i'm not agreeing in uh, with sartre by any extent but even if you look at it under that lens you see that if you have two people a relationship a couple or something like that that they themselves will not be truly judgmental of each other until there is a third entity. So, and also the individuals will be judged by each other. So it's when you have a three-way kind of relationship that you have a full understanding of each other, but a full judgmental in every single dynamic as well. So I, I definitely think that the three perhaps has some metaphysical kind of attachment, which goes beyond mere kind of symbolic reasoning, which I don't think which is kind of interesting. So if you look at the Greeks, yeah. three is a very kind of divine but somewhat evil number as well. Yeah, because as you know, my dad forced me to remember the entire Tao Te Ching. And one, one phrase inside that I still remember is uh, from one comes two, from two comes three, and from three comes everything. So at least from, for the Taoist, it is this three that initiates our movement. And you only need this three to create everything else. But going back to what you said about how is other people, it also seems to me that the idea of three is important in the sense that when we're in a direct relationship with another person as a two, we're never, we're never in a relationship with them where we always need a mediation of the other, of the third mm -hmm. person. That, that's what the comments by there's no sexual relationship. That is when you're having sex, your position is not a, a direct relationship with another person. But instead, you're always presupposing something else, presupposing a gaze that looks at you from the outside. And I think it's the same thing. Now, if we just get out of the sexual relationship thing, because I think people, psychoanalysts, like to use sex as an example, because it's, it, it, it reveals something very important that we, extend, we can extend to everyday relationships. So just me and you talking right now, obviously we have a third person that is the person listening to uh, to this podcast. But even without this third person, when we're just talking to each other in actual life, we're still presupposing another that is that is supposed to listen, another that is that we're supposed to perform. And without that other, I can I don't know, I can just fucking like take off my shirts. I don't like pee on the ground or something. And it is always <laughs> it's always a presupposition of the other that uh, th that is omnipresent inside personal relationships. I think that your idea of the other ties into or at least could be developed further in the idea of of religion or Christianity and the idea that when you're having a matrimony or even in any individual relationships, you're not only responsible to each other in any in interaction, but you're also responsible to God. And there's some sense through that interaction is you, you reach some sense of unity. And perhaps we can develop it into this situation where the three visitors enter uh, and meet Abraham. First of all, he, it's, it's very weird when you see the Lord appear to Abraham near the, the great tears of Marmara while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. 
It's like, well, the Lord appears to Abraham, but at the same time, Abraham, what Abraham sees is not the Lord, but three men. It's kind of the idea that the three men and the, the Lord are somewhat equipped, are the same in some sense that the moment Abraham sees the three men approaching, he knows it is God, even though it might not be God in the classical sense that we think of God. And perhaps it's because there's kind of some sense of knowledge that the three is a representation of the unity of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But also the idea that seeing the three men approach him is kind of the idea that the full, the fulfillment of the promises of God is become, has unified and is now visiting me. And that might be another way we can look at it. Yes, I agree. And I've just, again, been thinking about, you're saying that it is transposing this uh, concept of the other in psychoanalysis to, to God. Uh, the, the psychoanalytic interpretation would say that the profound insight of Christianity is that the big other, this third person that you presuppose in every single relationship does not actually exist. That is, God is dead. And instead, what, what Christianity is able to do is to transpose this other, this gaze that we always have to rely on, back to human beings, back to the small other, back, back to our everyday relationships. So God as Holy Spirit is not something beyond, but is something entirely within each person. And it is within this interaction between me and you that we, we are doing a service to God. It's not performing for God, but instead God is entirely reliant on human beings. Well, I think that, of course, naturally, you'll see me disagreeing with that view as a Christian. But... But I, I don't think, I, and I think we've had this discussion previously and we haven't come to a direct kind of agreement. But I think that essentially what we do see is, I definitely agree with you that there's this idea of the the other being within us and that's the Holy Spirit. I definitely think that's true. I think that's um, exactly the point of saying, well, when the fire, the tongues of fire uh, came to the disciples after uh, Jesus went back to heaven, that is the Holy Spirit within us. And that's kind of the, like being in the world. That's that is perhaps the, the part of the Trinity. But but back to the point about God dying, I don't necessarily see that that is essentially the case. I think I think what we more we see mainly is more God dying but coming back to life. And I think that that is what uh, the Christian message truly is about. If you look at God just dying and just God dies and comes into man, it is a bit of a, I think it takes away from the narrative where God dies and resurrects. And I think that that is the perhaps the difference between our two worldviews or ideas. Well, I guess when when I'm saying that God dies, I'm not saying in a kind of physical sense. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't really matter for me whether God exists or not. And I don't think it matters for the psychoanalytical interpretation. What <laughs> I guess what it's trying to say, it's not saying that, well, like laughing slyly, saying, aha, I caught you with your pants down. God doesn't actually exist. You're <laughs> just believing in something false. But instead, I think what it's trying to say is that the peculiar thing in Christianity is that we we have full responsibility, as in when we're acting, we can't just say, yes, this is the divine command from God, so I don't I don't bear any responsibility to it. But instead, even if God exists, we are still responsible for everything we do. Mm-hmm. I think that's and definitely hence, I, I think the, hence the emphasis on free will, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I think that point of responsibility is important. And I definitely agree with that kind of strand of the idea. And you might say that God is dead in this sense of 
maybe a uh, existential sense or at least a being kind of design kind of understanding at least a Tillichian kind of approach to it. I, I kind of been reading more Tillich and Heidegger but but essentially if you look at it from that perspective you kind of see it as um, the, the existence of God is dependent on its meaning and, and in that sense you would say perhaps that God did indeed die not in the physical or metaphysical sense but rather in the sense that the the way we interact with God has changed significantly. And that is in some ways the death of God. And I think that is definitely a possible uh, way to read the texts and, and remain faithful to the Christian kind of message. Cause I think the Christian message of the resurrection is profound, but mainly in a metaphysical sense. And it is the psychoanalysis of the metaphysical resurrection, which is a profundity perhaps mm -hmm. instead of this other way we're approaching it from mm -hmm. right now as a three and the one in the unity. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that, idea of the personal responsibility here is very interesting because I think it's built on later on in this um this chapter but there's this idea of of him bowing immediately to uh the lord or this three visitors instead of kind of going like kind of figuring out who they are he immediately bows down what's your thoughts on that I think that the very easy interpretation is that well you it's a good thing to be obedient to the Lord and to be grateful for everything that God gives you. And I think that, that, that's a fair enough interpretation. But it's, it's also, you know, there are some passages that it's very difficult to, to really dig out its, its deeper meaning, partly because I think we're, we're lacking understanding. I think that, that's a very interesting idea. And perhaps there's some ways where you can say, well, well, sometimes you're not meant to psychoanalyze things, you just accept it in some, some Kierkegaardian, just a, a leap of understanding or acceptance of, this, of the story, the history, and then you, you kind of get in depth understanding. I think there's this very interesting point in Spanish where, where we say story, the story, that, and in English, we have immediately the connotation of it being have some, some element of fiction. But if you look at um, in Spanish, what you see is that, well, the story is at, and the history is actually one and the same. Historia, historia, cuenta or cuento. It's like kind of the idea that there is not much of a difference between what is history and the story in the sense that they're one and the same when we're looking back at them. And I think that's a kind of interesting idea and might be able to be applied to some of these um, passages or at least areas where we don't necessarily get a full, clear kind of psychoanalytical kind of understanding maybe we shouldn't even be looking for them in the first place or maybe that's not meant to be the purpose of it and, and you're completely right i think there's two points that i can extract the first one perhaps is this what, what luther called despair before before one's inability to interpret the bible or to understand the bible this complete i think this complete realization that i am not for the job that it is impossible for me to have faith it is impossible for me to actually believe. It is impossible for me to gain salvation. And it's only in the state of completely accepting despair that something impossible can happen, that is to, to have faith. And Lucid had this interpretation, I think partly because of his understanding of the freedom of God. For him, because God is completely free, all the actions of God must be to us absolutely contingent so god's action is both ne necessary and contingent at the same time so it's only when we accept the absolute contingency the absolute impossibility to believe that for luther is is there this possibility for the contingent event and hope just uh hope just i guess avoids one of that that possibility and to pick out the second point I have forgotten the second point, but I think you can talk about the first point first. I think your first point is very interesting because there's this idea, and I think it echoes perfectly the idea of, 
of the centurion when he says to Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. You look at that and you're like, what on earth does that mean? It is very paradoxical. But in reality, I think this idea of help me with my unbelief is just so profound, is just so insightful, such that we're not meant to be, we're not meant to expect ourselves to have all the answers, but it's this kind of dependent or this faith in the answer itself before knowing the answer, which is kind of the key. And I think that's something very interesting. Oh, perhaps it's this fatal fatalist understanding that I can never have the answer that precisely gives rise to the possibility of one having the answer. And this knowledge of saying, well, I've been interpreting, trying to understand uh, the Genesis again and again and again for so many times, but I just can't understand it. And it, it takes a long time for one to gain the knowledge of one's own, I guess, unknowledge or, or one's own ignorance. And it is, it is starting from this absolute ignorance before the divine that one, there's the possibility for the absolute grace to, to arrive. I think that's an interesting idea. And it's like looking at the Christian faith, what is exact, exactly is the purpose of it all? I think that you look at the purpose of it all. And I think it's kind of like to further a relationship with the divine or further relationship with, with God. And, and you look at um, the Old Testament text and there's this um, idea such that a lot of people, atheists, like to critique the text and say, well, why is it so vague? But maybe it is the vaguity of the text, which is actually its purpose in the idea that it is your lack of knowledge of the text which allows you to know the texts and it sounds very paradoxical but i think it makes a lot of sense when you think about it deeper and you say well it's kind of like you give a kid a textbook a math textbook he only learns what one plus one equals two is nothing much more than that but give him a fable and, I, and this is not to say the genesis stories are fables i don't necessarily think that that's the case but you give them a, a story an action and they could get so much more from it and that is exactly why i think is the purpose of it it is in acceptance of that vagity which you reach the profundity, and it's not a flaw, but actually its greatest strength. And currently, I've been thinking about interpretation, right? Because a lot of people would criticize like different interpretations, like this is absolute bullshit. Because <laughs> you know when 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 people like Freud start interpreting the phallic inside Dostoevsky, like it does seem rather absurd. And I think similarly, a lot of times when I'm reading and I find these strange connections between different <laughs> different texts, different books and different authors, it's like, well, do they really intend this or am I sort of extracting this out, artificially creating them? And then the answer that I've arrived is that it doesn't really matter whether the meaning is already inside the, the text, inside the words or not, but rather that it is when we're interpreting a, a piece of art, a work of art, what we're doing really is also interpreting ourselves and, and whatever, whatever interpretation that comes out of the work of art is some, some part of ourselves that has been articulated, that has been expressed. So in this sense, the, the process of interpretation is productive, not perhaps because we can really exhaust all the meaning of the words of the Bible, but instead it is through this constant interpretation that we start to understand ourselves. And that's why these, these texts are so inexhaustible. That's why we can read the Bible 
20, 30, 50 times and, and still find something new. Because what we're finding new is not only what's new inside the Bible, but what's new inside us. And it, it's almost the Bible is, a, I guess, a key that enables us to understand ourselves better than we can normally understand it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very interesting idea. And I think it ties in very similar to our understanding of being. It's like your understanding of being isn't just about your understanding of the exact thing or the understanding found within that thing, but actually a, a mix of the two. It is the combined understanding of that in the world and that within yourself, which allows to uh, a complete understanding of being. Now, have you remembered your second point that you're talking about or, or were you wishing that I never raised it again because you still haven't thought of it? <laughs> yeah, I wish you never raised it again. <laughs> but if that's I mean, we, we can go back to the actual Genesis text. Maybe. Yeah, indeed. I think I think we can go to um, the chapter three aspect where it says, he said, I have found favor in, you, in your eyes. If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet and rest under the street. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they said. I'll do as you say. I think this is a very interesting idea because it's idea of inviting God into uh, your home, inviting the Lord, the unity into one's home. And I think that's something very interesting. Yes, I, I agree with you. This idea of inviting the divine into the home. But I think it also reveals some some profound concept of the neighbor and this hospitality to the neighbor that is expressed here. So when you're when you're expressing this uh, friendship and love towards your neighbor, what you're doing really is to is to let the Lord into your home. It's this because I'm thinking what really differs Judaism and Christianity, I think, to to the other major religions is is its attitude towards one's neighbor in the sense that there is there's it's a completely universal religion in some sense because there is no there is no concept of neighbor or your neighbor is is just yourself that's the famous line by paul of uh, you you need a greek nor a jew right you're just a believer and here i think we can we can see this inside abraham already by by inviting these three strangers into his home, he's showing this hospitality towards the neighbor. Of course, taking a certain risk too, and and thereby inviting God into their homes. I definitely think that that's a very interesting kind of thing you're thinking, and I think that perfectly ties into the idea that if you're doing something for someone else, if you're caring, if you're clothing the poor, you're doing that in love, then you're doing it as if you're clothing me. And there's this idea that. We ought to love others, and we also are meant to seek. And if we look for the divine, we realize that the divine is already at our door. In some sense, that the neighbor isn't some distant entity that you have to invite in, but it is the moment of inviting in that you realize it is already there. I think that there's this idea of knocking the door shall be opened unto you, seek and you shall find. It's a great hymn. It's the idea that God is already on your doorstep. The point of resurrection or salvation or at least understanding is not necessarily to go look for him but rather to just open the door and reach out yes and the 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 line seek and you shall find well first you have to go and seek so you you almost have to open yourself up there's a very heideggerian theme here because for heidegger it's like what's that sign for him the fundamental 
I guess, function of Dasein is this attunement towards the world that he calls a clearing, a certain openness, a creation of a certain space in which being can come through. And if you want to interpret it in your Tillichian way, in a, in a biblical way, then we, we are just this openness that invites God in, or we, we are this humanity, is this creation of a certain space, that a certain space in which the divine can inhabit itself, and perhaps a space that, a, a, a certain area that is carved out out of the meaninglessness of the rest of the world. And I think this, we, we also have to emphasize on certain meaningless, the meaninglessness of certain events, because we don't want to go into, as I told you before, this kind of strange pantheism. It's like, well, COVID hit. Uh, there's, a, there's a divine reason for that. Everything has a reason. Everything has a meaning. And said so there are some things that's meaningless. And I think that's the, also the teaching of Job. But it is despite this meaninglessness of much of suffering, that's for us by uh, clothing the poor, by inviting our neighbors into, into our homes, that we can carve out this small space that the divine can inhabit. I definitely agree with you. I think that that is such a beautiful idea, the idea of the need to invite the, the neighbor in, the divine in. And now with that in mind, let's carry on reading on the passage and go into uh, Gen, uh, 6 and 9, where it says, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and it said, bake some stuff, prepare some food, prepare the best food as well. Where is your wife, Sarah? They are in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. I think we could split this off and first talk about preparing the best for your guests. And then we can talk about the son. Unless, of course, there is actually nothing we can talk about. Uh, where is uh, preparing the best for your guest? Yeah, I think, I think it's a very similar thing to what we said before. Mm -hmm. And Indeed. also, it's just, and it, it's a very constant thing. At least in, in Chinese culture, it's I know that uh, my, my dad and especially my grandparents, they, they were very poor. Chinese peasants basically and then they they didn't eat meat or egg for like 334 days a year and then only one day during Chinese New Year because they they had to save all of their of their chicken all of their pork to sell it to other people so they can survive but they they've always had they always have a few eggs in reserve so when when, when someone comes far away to visit them they'll cook uh, they could cook the eggs and they always let the, the person who comes over to visit to eat the eggs rather than they themselves and i think it, it's also there's also the interesting idea that started basically modern anthropology of giving gifts well why do we give gifts it, it seems like a very strange thing to do very economically inefficient because obviously other people if you accept this kind of rational uh rational agent theory, then I know, I know my interest better than everyone else. So if I just give you money instead of giving you a gift and let you go and buy what you like, then I'm going to provide more utility for you than if I give you a gift. But we see this gift giving everywhere, everywhere around the globe. And it, it, there, there is some big significance inside it. And I think the significance is this a symbolic exchange that uh, this exchange of hospitality is this building of a certain bond, this carving out of a space for the divine that you find when you prepare the best 
for your neighbor. And when you go to your neighbor, your neighbor prepares the best for you, prepares their best for you. And it is, it is this, even though it may not be the most economically efficient thing to do, that allows something very beautiful to come onto earth. I think that's definitely true. And I don't think there's much I can add on to your ideas, apart from maybe some cliched idea, like it is the thought that counts or something along those lines. But let us continue on and talk about the sun because it is very interesting. Then the Lord's then uh, now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was passing the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and, and she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you as at the appointed time next year. And Sarah will have a son. What are your thoughts on this passage? I think the, the son has a almost double role here. There's a little son, but also it's the son is an idea of hope and possibility. And I think endless potentiality. And it, it's in strict contrast with Sarah, who's sort of old and senile and unfertile and just completely closed off. But then it's this, again, this kind of create, creation ex nihilo that is presented here. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. And it's, and I don't think, I do think there is something divine about the giving of a gift, which is the child, because of course the child here is a, a fulfillment of a promise at a weird time but at the same time there's this idea that the child being born is itself a divine nature and, and that's something that kind of like the creation of ex nihilo it's kind of this idea that the child is light and it's kind of the same too as a da a luz in a spanish which says give a light which also means give birth there's some connection between the two it's very profound and and, and especially the spanish this Spanish connection, because I think it's almost like every single birth, every single birth of the child is a divine act. It's because uh, Hannah Arendt had the idea, I'm sorry for always referencing Hannah Arendt, but <laughs> uh, had the idea of natality and for her, the, this is the primary feature of human beings is natality. That is the ability to create new things, to create new processes, to, to be in any despairing situation and to always have the ability, the potentiality to, to overcome it because we are never who we are, but we are more. And perhaps in, in biblical imagery, we can say this, excess this more upon the human being that is just normally acting inside the world that seems closed off like sarah is what we call god and this excess this more can be seen in our ability to to have a child this this divine creation that that like the, the child's imagery and so it feel, feels basically all all of i think christianity and it's just, I, I guess my point, what I want to make is this natality, is this access over the hu normal human being that is also part and parcel of who we are, this natality. And that is what we can say is the divine. And 
we can symbolize that as the giving of the sun. And it is actually a double giving in some sense, because every single birth is already a giving, a NATO act, a creatio ex nihilo. But this one, it's on top of the normal creation that we have a second creation or a second miracle that is happening here of having a son when one's possibilities seem to be closed off forever. I think that there's this also this idea of the divine, the ability through God that all things are possible. Because you look at this situation, it's like, obviously it's impossible, but it is that fact that it is impossible at the face of the impossible that the greatest life and light can be given. It's the, it's that gift which of God is that which comes in the most difficult timing. And, and that's also a very interesting idea. I got one last comment and I'm wondering what you think about it. So I, I, I went back to Hannah Arendt recently again, after almost finishing her complete works. And she has this great line in the origin of totalitarianism. And she said that uh, she, she sort of changed the wording of uh, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky said that if God is dead, everything is permissible. And she said, observing totalitarianism, that if God is dead, then everything is possible. Anything can happen. So it seems to me that this is strange torsion that's going on in her thought. At the same time, she celebrates this natality, this endless possibility that we talked about, that is the divine. But also, she also shrinks from horror in this sense of everything is possible when God is dead or, or when everything is possible, when there is no constraint to the endless processes, this endless creation that human beings can do. And for example, of, of uh, ecological catastrophes right now, or even, I guess, other political situations that we can see here. It is this creation that is both divine, but also absolutely malign and destructive. Would you agree with this? I think there's a very interesting idea at work here, because I would definitely agree with the idea that if God is dead, then you remove the constraint. But I don't necessarily think that removing the constraint leads to anything new to occur, because in the last philosophy discussion I was having with a few kids at school, I said, well, we, we got into discussion about, well, existentialism, God, and well, what exactly happens when you get rid of God, you get rid of the cr- culture and the tradition, the traditional idea of constraints. You got a blank slate, but then you say, well, what do you put on that blank slate? Every time you raise a blank slate, you always inevitably almost end up back at where you started with your culture and your tradition. So I think that what you do see is that, yes, metaphysically, everything is possible. You lose the constraint. But the question is, do people actually use that new freedom to escape the constraint? Most people do not. And then turn to despotism. And that's the idea that you've gotten rid of the constraint with unlimited freedom, I get unlimited despotism, you you get rid of that constraint, and then you go back to the tradition, you go back to the culture, then you twist in such a way that it becomes very tyrannical and very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's also her point about Nazism and Stalinism. What she said is they're actually, um, they're, the logic, the inner logic is very similar to this kind of scientific logic in, in our age, as in there's the idea for both of, I think you're right here, of both fending off all possibility in the sense that there's one problem either with the Jews or with uh, 
the the bourgeoisie. And once we solve that problem, a, a paradise will come at the end. Uh, a, a state, a utopian state, will arrive once we've uh, just gotten rid of this thing. Perhaps diagnosing the problem scientifically, we we can go straightforwardly from state A to state B. Whereas that's never what happens in in human situations. But instead, there's always this constant lurking of possibility of, and potentiality that is behind it. Although at the same time, it's like once once you fend off all of these possibility, once you delude yourself that history is this linear line towards a certain place, that you you understand the entire world, then perhaps in that sense, everything is possible because you you can do anything because you think you know everything there's no there's no ontological gap or a ontological gap that you're dwelling in that she characterized as between past and future so between tradition on one hand which is always crumbling and then the newness that, that we have to make to repair the tradition on the other hand and find a new way out and once you close this gap between past and future close this realm of uncertainty and possibility then everything becomes paradoxically possible because you think that you know you because you think that nothing is possible or you know everything i think that's a very interesting idea but i think that is exactly why perhaps illustrates why dostoevsky was so hesitant to say well let's just let everything be possible and let's get rid of the tradition that's why he was emphasizing so much importance of Christianity, but not Christianity in the dogmatic sense, but more Christianity in the the beauty sense, the beauty of Christ, which I think is fundamentally the man, or at least the the, the core of Dostoevsky's faith. So, hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, we will be discussing Sodom and Gomorrah live soon. Uh, you will probably be seeing this in the future, but we'll see how that goes. Like always, thank you for watching. If you've enjoyed this discussion, like always, make sure to like and subscribe. Stay safe, my friends. You can always find our audio recordings of these on Dostoyevsky and us or Thinker's Kitchen. Stay safe. See you soon, my friends, and goodbye.